Well, we're finishing up on our, our overflow series this morning, and uh, I want to ask you, have you ever been in the wrong place at the wrong time? Anyone ever experienced that? You're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe you were walking by a puddle, and a car came and sprayed you, and you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or you were in a car, and someone came and T-boned you. You were definitely in the wrong place at the wrong time. This week, there was a bunch of people, uh, this last week, there was a bunch of people at a gaming convention in Florida. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time as someone came in and shot fire. I think it was a guy from Baltimore who did it as well. Even today, uh, there was reports of a big uh, explosion in Somalia where many people lost their lives. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the consequences of being in the wrong place at the wrong time can be really extreme for some people. I remember there was a time when I was a 14-year-old boy, and uh, I lived in England, and, and a couple of miles down the road from where we lived, there was uh, a canal. And uh, in the UK, all the cities are connected by these man-made canals where these little barges go on. They're very, qu- very quaint, very cute, um, and, and things like that. And, well, people, like, walk their dogs or they go for a walk along the canal, and some people ride their bikes um, along it. It's just very peaceful um, and things. And you can get anywhere in the UK by the canal. Well, when I was 14... I used to go on my, I used to have like a bike and I used to ride my bike a lot. Uh, and I said to my friend, one of my friends, his name was Mark, Mark Edwards. I was like, hey, let's go for a ride today. We're off school. It was an October day. And so it was kind of nice weather for October, but still October in the UK is still pretty cold. And uh, and so he's like, yeah, sure. So we, 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 we rode down the road to where the canal, we can get onto the canal. And there was this bridge and, and we go down the bridge and we get down. And you can actually see it here. And this is actually by my parents' home in the UK and uh, so you come down here and as we came down the, uh, the, the the ramp we took a left to go under the bridge and uh, then we were going to just cycle for as long as we could and we knew we could get all the way around kind of down to the downtown area of the city that we lived in. Well as we get on the bike he rides and I'm following behind as I go under that bridge it's really narrow. As I go on the bridge, this bird flies right at me. As the bird flies right at me, I turn my wheel to dodge the bird. At the very moment I turn my wheel, my wheel turns in a spot where the bank has eroded and my wheel suddenly goes right into the water. I flip over and I land in the water with my bike. Now, let me tell you, even though it looks cute, It's about as healthy as the Baltimore Inner Harbor to swim in that water. It's very shallow, but no one knows what's at the bottom of that water. You do not go in it. So I am there, and I scream, probably like a girl, as I go in there. And I'm trying to swim out, and my leg is caught to the bike. So my friend is trying to pull me out. I'm trying to pull out, and I can't get out. Then somehow this runner just appears out of nowhere, pulls me out of the water, and I turn around to say thank you, and he's disappeared. Not thinking anything of it, I was like, where'd that guy go? And my friend was like, you know what? You know you're into God and all that kind of crazy stuff? Do you think that could have been an angel? I'm like, I don't know. Even to this day, I don't know where that guy went. So I'm soaking wet, and I have my wallet, and I've got money in the wallet, and it's wet and everything. And I got a choice. Can I go home or just carry on? Well, the sun started to come out. And when the sun comes out in the UK, you don't go home. You stay out because you never see it. 
So I'm like, let's go and just continue riding the bike. I'll dry off. So we carried on riding and, uh, uh, and we rode for quite a few miles. And uh, then we got to a spot that I knew that they had a, a, a proper British fish and chip place. And so we went and got fish and chips for, for lunch. And then we carried on riding. And, uh, and we took a turn where I knew it would end up in the downtown area of our city. And then we could just ride back home from there as we didn't leave. Uh, uh, we, we weren't very far from the downtown area of our city. And so as we're riding, suddenly I'm looking around and I start seeing these buildings. And I'm looking and I'm like, hold on, I think I know where we are. We need to get off here as quick as possible because this is taking us through a really bad part of the city. And so I was like, the next bridge we get to, we're going to get off and we're going to get into the downtown area as quick as we can because we don't want to be around here. Well, as I say that, these two guys, and we were, uh, they were young guys, but they were probably 18 or 19 at the time, so they were much bigger than us. We were like 14. They're walking, and I see them, and I, I go quicker, and I kind of take a, a wide turn, and I ride right past them, and I go up the bridge, and I turn around, and my friend Mark is not there. And I look around, and these two boys have stopped my friend Mark. And all I see him, he's ushering, come here, come here. And I'm like, no, I'm not coming here. <laughs> and so eventually I see him pulling out his pockets and doing this to his pockets. And then they push him, and then they walk off. And he rides up to the top of the hill. I was like, what, went, what happened there? What was going on? He says, well, the guys wanted me to give them money. And I said, I had no money. I says, but he's got the money up there, <laughs> like this. So he wanted me to come back to give him the money. We were totally in the wrong place at the wrong time. I'm like, what were you thinking? You know, let's just go home. I'm like, it was a bad day. I fell in the water, and I probably got some disease that is still with me right now. And we also, well, he got mugged, but he didn't have any money to be mugged on. So you can be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And sometimes when that happens, things do not go very well at all. Now, most of the time you're in the wrong place at the wrong time by chance. But there are moments in our lives where we make bad decisions, which puts us in the wrong place at the wrong time. I should have known going along that canal, I should have known, I knew my city, I should have known we needed to get off before we got to the bad area. And that one wise, unwise decision put us in a position where two guys nearly mugged us. But I found throughout my journey of faith and other people's journeys of faith that often when we make unwise choices, we'll find ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. And when that happens, the overflow or the results of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, I always find is a little word called temptation that comes along. And so if you find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time, then often you can find temptation comes your way. And when temptation comes your way, it can be very hard to say no to. Now, I don't know about you. You may be strong. But I find that when temptation strikes, I often fall down. I'm not as strong as I think I, I should be, or I'm not as strong as I think I am when temptation comes. I don't like my odds when I'm tempted with something. I've still got a bunch of British chocolate in my house right now that I keep saying, I'm not going to eat it. But it's out in open sight, and slowly, bit by bit, 
that chocolate is going away. Because it's tempting me. It's right there. I don't like my chances against temptation. And when temptation comes, it can be like a river that has burst its banks. It starts to flow. And once it starts to flow, it becomes impossible to stop. And the residue of temptation is a path of destruction. Just like a tornado ripping through a small western town or a hurricane ripping through a Caribbean island, temptation can be like that. So as we finish up our series today, we're going to take a very different turn to what we've been looking at. Over the last three weeks, we've been looking at the life of David and we've been looking at when we make good choices, when we do good things, when we keep our heart pure, when we stay close to God, when we honor others, the amazing things that happen in our life when those things happen. But today we're going to look at a different way. We're going to look at what happens when we make unwise choices and how those choices can affect our lives. So if you've got your Bibles, if you want to turn to the second book of Samuel, chapter 11. We've been going through the first book of Samuel throughout this series, but today we're going to look at the second book of Samuel. And basically this is what what has happened. David has now become king of Israel. He is the top man. He is he is the guy that everybody looks up to. He make he calls the shots. He is the number one guy. He is now the king of Israel. And in verse 11, Chapter 1 to 13, this is what it says. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. And they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. He was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent a message to David saying, I'm pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. Then David sent the word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked a lot, uh, how, asked him how Joab and the, uh, and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace, but Uriah did not go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, the ark and the enemies of, uh, and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are camping in open fields. 
how could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Man, the guy is more honorable than me. I don't think I would be doing that. It says this, well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So this story is the greatest mistake of David's life. It's the greatest mistake of David's reign as king, and it's the greatest mistake that Israel had made, or he had made for Israel during his time as king. As he strolls along the palace rooftop that evening, in ancient Israel, there was a lot of the homes, they all had kind of flat roofs and people would sleep out on the rooftops because it would be sometimes so hot in the house and, and, they, and, and they would do a lot of things outside and all the homes had flat roofs and David walking on the palace looks out and he sees in the distance a thing of unusual beauty. Her name is Bathsheba. Bathsheba is washing and as she is washing herself on the rooftop, David just can't help himself. David knows he should look the other way, but he doesn't look the other way. In, in fact, David probably gets his binoculars out, and he gets a little weird, and he starts looking at Bathsheba. David sees her. He wants her. So he sends word, who is that woman? And the word comes back, she is the daughter of Eliam. Eliam was one of David's mighty men. David had his soldiers, and then he had a select group of people called his mighty men. These were the people closest to David. David knew them. He knew everything about them. They were loyal to David. And she was the daughter of Eliam, but she was also the wife of a guy called Uriah the Hittite, who also was one of David's mighty men. He, David knew him. He's probably thinking, how did he get her? That's probably what he's thinking. But he sends for her, and he finds out that it is Uriah's wife. He sends for her, she comes, and they get biblical. Literally biblical. It's in the Bible, right? They have relations, and she gets pregnant. Now, the reason that she was washing on the rooftop is because she had been ceremonially unclean. The Jewish law said that when a woman had her period, she became ceremonially unclean from the day that her period started. Then she would be ceremonially unclean seven, up to seven days after the bleeding had stopped. So now she's on the rooftop, and depending on her cycle, she is either 10 to 14 days after she had had her period. David should have known better. Firstly, David should have known better because he knew she was married. He knew she was married. What is he doing asking a married woman come to his palace? He knew she was married. But secondly, David knew she was washing because she was ceremonially unclean. So he should have known 
that she was most fertile as well. So if he's going to sleep with her, the chances of her getting pregnant right now are even more. I don't want to get into a biology lesson, but that's basically what happens. He should have known better, but guess what? Guys don't always think better when women come along. And this is what happened with David. He forgot about reason. And he started to look, and his eyes deceived him. So they had relations, she's become pregnant. And then this is what David says. Okay, we're in a bind here. We can't let this out. If she has this baby and they find out it's mine, this is not good. Right? There's going to be unrest among my mighty men. It's going to bring dishonor to her. It's going to bring dishonor to me and dishonor to the throne. This is what we're going to do. This is the plan. I'm going to send a note to Joab, the leader of the army. Send me Uriah the Hittite to bring a report. So he comes home, brings a report, and basically says, okay, now you've come home. Good job. Go home and sleep with your wife. Please go and sleep with your wife. But the guy shows more honor to the throne of David than that whatever David has shown to his throne. He says, how can I go home and sleep with my wife and relax when the men of Israel are out there fighting? I can't do that. It's like one of those gut-raging things, right? You know, you've done something wrong and someone comes along and they are so perfect. You're just like, can't you do something wrong for once? And that's probably what David is thinking. To cut a long story short, and it is a long story, David basically then sends a note with Uriah to go back to Joab and the armies. And in the notes, it says to Joab, Uriah the Hittite, make sure that he goes to the front lines of battle where the, where the, where the fighting is the most fiercest. So Joab then goes and sends Uriah where the fighting is the most fiercest, and guess what's happened? Uriah dies. David knew Uriah was going to die. He knew it all along. But he did it basically to protect himself from shame, from Bathsheba and from the throne. Not only are David's hands now dirty because he's committed with adultery with a woman who's not his wife, but now David's hands are dirty with blood because he has caused a man to die. It is murder. This story is horrific. It is horrific. But let's continue to see what happens in 2 Samuel, verses 11, 26 to 27. It says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. The most horrifying words a man or a woman could ever hear in their lives is this, the Lord is displeased with you. But this is easily what can happen when we let temptation take a foothold in our lives. The story of David shows us a lot of things here. And this story, I've picked out three things that the story of David shows us. It shows us this, that when we allow temptation to have a foothold, it can become destructive and have a domino effect. Have a domino effect. So it's not just one thing, it starts to affect other things in our lives. 
The second thing the story of David shows us is that when te- that temptation will cause you to stop thinking and to start acting. And when you act without thinking, you will end up making some soul-destroying decisions. Let me tell you about acting without thinking. So we have this car that we lease, and the lease comes up next month. And so we took it back to the dealership where we got us. And they showed us the new cars, the new models, and we didn't like any of the new models. But still, the car dealer or the salesman was saying, well, take this car home. You may like it when you get home. I'm like, no, I don't like the car, right? So we start looking at other cars that, that maybe we like, you know, different ones. And we've looked at a ton of them, and we narrowed it down to a couple. So we made the dreaded decision to walk on the car dealership, right? So we walk on the car dealership, and there were some good dealers, car dealers, and there were some bad car dealers. And what I mean by the good ones, the good ones basically, okay, what do you need? This is what we've got. This is what, what's your budget. The bad ones are, you need this car. I don't care what your budget is. You are walking off the lot with this car, right? And so there was a couple, we, we test drove, some we liked, some that we didn't, but we narrowed it down to two cars. And we liked the salesman, but then their manager came over. And he was a bit of an idiot, if I'm allowed to say that. And I didn't really like him that much. You know, you get that feeling about somebody. And he was giving me figures that I did not want. I was like, I can't afford that. I don't want that. But yet, it was almost like he had attached a chain to my leg and would not let me off the car dealer, off the lot, until I bought that car. And I said, look, I'm just going to go home, think about it, crunch some numbers. Well, no, because he knew this. He knew that if I acted on emotion, that I would get the car. But if I started to think about it, I would reason it. Now, we have someone who runs a car dealership right here, David. He's a great car dealer. So you got a car, go to David, right? Don't go to this other guy who was an idiot, right? But this is what happens. If you start thinking with emotion, you start making decisions that aren't always the best for you. When you, when you act instead of thinking, and this is what happened to David. He started acting. He saw what he wanted, and he started acting before thinking, mm, is this a good idea? And then thirdly, David's story shows us that temptation's goal is not to force you to make a questionable choice. Temptation's goal is to see your life spiral out of control. If you have an alcoholic and the alcoholic sees a bar. This is what the alcoholic should do, run away from the bar, right? Because there's nothing really about the bar that that is worrying to the alcoholic. Even if the alcoholic has one drink, it's not going to ruin his life, but this is what temptation does. The temptation doesn't say to the alcoholic, I want you to sit in the bar. Temptation doesn't even say, I want you to have one drink. Temptation says, I want you to become dependent again on alcohol. So your life can spiral out of control. And this is what happened to David. Have you ever seen someone whose life has spiraled out of control? It's devastating. So let's continue the story. 2 Samuel verse 12, verse 1, it says, So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell this story. So Nathan is a prophet. He comes to David and he tells him a story. And basically this is the story. There's a poor man. 
and there's a rich man, and the rich man takes on the poor man, and the poor man has nothing left. And David says, who is this man? Whoever he is, let me find him. I will give justice to the poor man. And in verse 7, this is what it says. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if you had not, if that not had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Amorites and stolen his wife. Then he says this, from this time on, so now Nathan is saying, this is what the Lord's saying, David, from now on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. David's like, "Uh uh-oh. Then it says this in verse 13, Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child and David and Uriah's, and, and Uriah's wife. Eventually, the baby died. This was just a start for David. Nathan comes and says, because you have done this, this is what God has said. David's life started to spiral out of control. Suddenly, death comes into David's life. Violence is in his life. Family turmoil, trouble came at all angles. In fact, we haven't got time to look at all the things that happened to David, but I've summarized it in a list of things what happened to David after he had this night of passion with Bathsheba. And this is the list, and you'll see it on the screen. There was murder. His armies got defeated. There was a dead child. There was a sad wife. His daughter was raped by his son. A son of his killed another one of his sons. A son then tried to rise up and challenge his throne. Then that son stole his throne. David now is no longer king. He lost respect amongst his own people. Traitors started to come into the palace. He lost his home. Then the son who raised up and took his throne died. He lost another son to death. There was constant turmoil of war. Even a plague came in to Israel. And then even at the end of David's life, another son tried to come and steal his throne. All because David despised the Lord and God was displeased with him. What amazes me about this story is that when Nathan came to David, David fell on his knees 
and repented to God. In fact, he fasted before God for the child. He cried before God. And the Bible says that God forgave him of his sins. But let me tell you, just because God forgives us of sin does not mean there is consequences of our sins. And this is the problem for us as people of grace. We we have the grace of God, meaning we have the forgiveness of sins. If you follow Jesus and Jesus is Lord of your life, your sins are forgiven. They are no more. God has wiped them out. They are no more. There is freedom from sin. However, it does not mean that there's not consequences for our sins. And this is why we have to be careful. This is why as people of grace, we can't just sin and do whatever we want to do. Well, God forgives me. God's forgiveness is great, but still we leave behind a trail of destruction with consequences. However, all this should have never happened. It should have never happened. David should have never, ever seen Bathsheba that night. David should have never been on the rooftop that night, for David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Let's take a look at this again. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. We've already read it. But now listen to what the word says. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and his Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege in the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. David should not have been in Jerusalem. David should have been at war with his armies. David should have been in a foreign land. David should have never been in the palace. He should have never been able to see Bathsheba, for he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. David had passed his his kingly responsibilities of leading the army to the generals, and he stayed at home. Now, we're not sure why he stayed at home, but this is what we know. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and the overflow of that was temptation. Think if David had never been there. Imagine if David had been at war where he was supposed to be. Uriah would not have lost his life. David would not have committed adultery. David wouldn't have blood on his hands. His army would not have been defeated. A baby would not have died. His daughter would have not have been raped. His sons would have not have died. He would have not have lost his throne. He would have seen peace through his life. And God says this to him. He says, "I I would have given you so much more than what you already have. Was God still with David? Yes. David was still blessed. In fact, his second child with Bathsheba became his heir, became Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived. God worked things out for good, but imagine what David could have been if he had just gone to war instead of staying at home. Imagine if he had done his kingly duty and gone to war. See, many Christians struggle with temptation. The problem is they're just not strong enough against it. And when we're not strong enough against temptation, we feel guilt and we feel shame. And the problem is, is we leave it too late to pray. This is how many Christians pray. 
God, help me to combat this temptation. Help me to not fall into this temptation that is before me. And our prayer often goes up once we are in the grip of temptation. But that should not be our prayer. Our prayer, in fact, should be that we will not be confronted with temptation. See, the problem is, is we pray because we think we're strong enough to go into situations. And when we're not strong enough, we pray to God and say, God, help me. But really, the wise start to pray even before temptation strikes. Remember, the disciples came to Jesus and says, Jesus, teach us how to pray. He says, okay, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. And then it says this in Luke chapter 4, verse, uh, Luke 11, verse 4. Jesus said this, And forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See what Jesus is telling us to pray? Jesus is not telling us to pray once we're there in temptation. God, help me. He is teaching us to pray, Lord, help us not to be led into temptation. Our prayer each and every day should be that the Lord leads us along a path where temptation does not dwell. That we should be praying that we make wise choices. So we're not even confronted with temptation. And if David had prayed wise choices. If he had prayed that God lead us not into temptation, he would have known he should have gone to war and not stayed at home. Now maybe you found yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe temptation has struck for you. Maybe you live your life in guilt and shame. Maybe your life has spiraled out of control once in a while. Well, I've got good news for you. The Lord forgives you. There is forgiveness of sins. The grace of God covers a multitude of sins and God forgives you. And there's even better news. Not only does God forgive you, God invites you to feast at his table. There is a place for you. So if temptation has struck in your life and you have not been strong enough, there is still a place for you. Jesus wants to dine with you. He wants to feast with you. You can come to the table of Jesus and find forgiveness of, of sins. You will find comfort for your heart and restoration for your soul. And this morning we're going to gather before we close today around the table of God's. And this is an open invitation to everyone. For the grace of God forgives you of your sins. Jesus says, I remember your sins no more. And maybe you're right now in the grip of temptation. Well, pray this prayer. Lord, deliver us from the evil one. So as we gather around the table of the Lord today, we can make a new start. We can use this as a place where we start to pray Lord, help us avoid temptation. And if temptation does strike, then deliver us from that temptation. This is what I know. 
Whenever you accept an invitation to the table of Jesus, whenever you accept an invitation to feast with Jesus, this is what I know. It is always the right place at the right time. Let's bow our heads in prayer. As we close today, we're going to participate in communion. Some churches call it the Lord's Supper. Others call it the Eucharist. But it's basically us coming together as a body, as a church, as a community to remember the life, the death, the resurrection and the second coming of Jesus. See, Jesus faced temptation. He was tempted in all ways and he faced it and he defeated temptation. And because he defeated temptation and he defeated the evil one, that means that we now can become victorious over the temptations of our lives. So this morning, I want to invite you to come and feast with me at the table of God. There's some bread, there's some wine. The bread represents the body of Christ. The apostle Paul says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, he broke, he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. There's some wine at the table. And he says, after supper, he took the cup. And he says, this is a cup of a new covenant, a new promise, sealed with my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. He says, do this as often as you gather together until I come again. And so this morning, as you come and you feast at the table of the Lord, take some of the bread, dip it in the wine. And as you partake, let it be a reminder to you that firstly, there is forgiveness of sins. That the grip of sin does not have a grip on your life anymore. But also use it as a reminder to pray this prayer, Lord, Lead us not into temptation. Help me to make wise choices for the rest of my life. So I'm going to pray. And after I pray, if you want to get out of your seat, there's a table here at the front. There's a table at the back. And if you choose to accept the invitation and come and feast with me at the table of the Lord, let's do it with delight and joy about what Jesus has done for us.